This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Legend of the Bones. Following in the footsteps of giants, Legend of the Bones is a chimera. A mix of old school tabletop RPG and dark fantasy storytelling. As its name might suggest, in Legend of the Bones, the dice rule. There'll be no re-rolls, no fudging the dice, no metacurrency. The roll of the bones will determine the character's destiny, and no one will be spared their fate. None shall escape the destiny of bone. Last time on Legend of the Bones. Following a great storm that battered the north coast of Powan Moor, Lord Conwyn offered a ship and crew to take the party to the monastery located on the holy island known as Innis Gwyn. Before their departure, Lord Conwyn and Lady Neve presented the companions with gifts as a reward for their service, which included a magic ring given to Valen, which possessed a single charge of the spell ESP. Having said their farewells, the companions departed aboard the Uvadracha a longship under the helm of Canute, the commander of Lord Corwin's household troops. In a flashback, we learned Canute's backstory and of his homeland, the northern realm of Scanvia. Back in the present, on the second day of the voyage, the ship followed the coast, passing some ruins known as Kerodu, which Canute warned was an evil place. At that moment, Beric spotted a large creature flying towards the Uberdraka from the cliffs near the ruins. The creature, a hippogriff, attacked the vessel, injuring Lena, but it was stunned when Canute manoeuvred the ship, resulting in the hippogriff colliding with the mast. Seeing an opportunity, the crew retaliated with spears, killing the beast before its body sank beneath the waves, where its carcass would become rich fodder for the denizens of the deep. Chapter 23, Part 1, Day 31, Afternoon, Party Status, Beric, 23 out of 23 hit points, Lena, 11 out of 16 hit points, Kier, 10 out of 10 hit points, Valen, 11 out of 11 hit points. Spells available, Valen has memorised Push, Shield, and Soothe. Lena can pray for two first-level miracles. The westerly wind drove the Uvadracha ever onwards under the cloudless azure sky, as bright sunlight danced like a million diamonds upon the waves. The ship no longer hugged the rocky shore, for after passing the headland of Kerudu, the ship entered a vast expanse of water, which Canute said was known as the Bay of Sorrow. Yet despite being several miles away, the visibility was such that to the south, the coastline could still be seen. Following the attack by the Hippogriff, Valen cleaned and bound Lena's wound, and whilst she could have sought the Nine's blessing for healing, the Cleric was not complacent, and desired not to constantly avail herself of the Nine's divine grace. It's not so serious, Lena tried to convince the mage as he tightened the bandage. No. 
but neither is it trivial. On its own, it may take a week to heal. Balaam replied, Perhaps tonight you will permit me to soothe your passage to sleep, the mage offered. Lena smiled softly. We shall see. Thank you for the dressing. She got up and picked her way between the crew towards the helm, where Beric stood with Knut. Kia was busy talking and laughing with a member of the crew, and so Valen was left alone in the company of Talia. The bard had an eyebrow raised and a half-smile on his face. The mage had not had the opportunity to be alone with Talia since hearing the bard's song back in Castle Trevenet, yet Valen was intrigued by the man and desired greatly to speak with him. He cleared his throat. <clears throat> so, he began awkwardly, speaking in his native Wayland tongue. You are the first spellsinger I have met beyond the shores of Hlanuis. How long since you left our homeland? The bard's expression remained the same. He was clearly amused by the mage's attempt at small talk. Nevertheless, he indulged him. Oh, just one year hence? I desire to see the world, and all its glory. Talion replied in Wayland. Then the bard leaned in. But that is not what you really want to ask, is it? Valen looked Talion in the eye. No. The bard leaned back. Well then, ask for the truth, and I shall give it. For three years this question had troubled Valen, haunted his dreams, and cast a shadow over his life. He sighed. He longed to know, but part of him still wanted to hold on to ignorance. Do they say I murdered Murdran? There was no taking it back now. Did you? Talion asked. I killed him, yes, but it was self-defense. The mage admitted. Talion nodded. For my part, I believe you. The bard smiled kindly. I spent some time in Hlorlin's court two years ago. He explained. The talk was that Madran was a cruel man, that he abused all whom he saw as beneath him, and that his young apprentice, a quiet man called Valen, received more beatings than anyone. So when the old man was found dead and the apprentice had fled, naturally there was talk of murder. But the sympathy of most was not with Madran, but with you. Talion paused as Valen's eyes became downcast. Then he continued. But to answer your question, yes, Lord Llewellyn judged the matter as murder, and decreed a price be placed upon your head, lest you return and pay the Galanas. How much? Valen asked, referring to the Galanas, the life price due to the victim's family, or the Lord if no family existed. Twenty thousand, the bard replied. Valen sighed. Well then, I shall likely never see my homeland again. Vela would have liked to talk further with Talion, but at that moment, Lena returned from the stern. The cleric was looking out beyond the prow, and when she reached the two Whalen men, she also pointed. Look, there, an island. The Gazetteer 
Inisquin. Inisquin, or the Blessed Isle, as it is also known, is a small tidal island a mile off the mainland coast of Powan Moor. The island is approximately 100 acres in size, and is home to the oldest monastery on the peninsula. The sandy shoreline of the island is followed by a ring of grassland, much of which has been turned to cultivating crops and keeping livestock, before giving way to a large granite mound upon which the monastery itself is situated. The monastery was founded over 500 years ago, less than a century after the first missionaries of the Nine arrived at the peninsula, and was established as a place of sanctuary for those spreading the word. Within 50 years, the Church of the Nine had become the official religion as King Mark the Pious adopted the faith, although to this day, most common folk still observe the old ways in one way or another. The monastery's founder, Father Caspian, is credited with King Mark taking up the faith, after invoking a miracle which saved the life of Mark's daughter, and he went on to become the High Seer in Trevance. On his death, Caspian's body was returned to the Blessed Isle to be interned in the monastery's crypt, and a decade later, he was canonised as a saint. Caspian's faith and influence aside, his real legacy was the founding of the monastery's library, which, over the centuries, has grown into an impressive collection, and as such, Inisquin has for many years been a place of pilgrimage for worshippers and scholars alike. Nowadays, Inisquin is permanent home to 81 monks, including the current abbot, Father Wiglaf, although at any time there may be a handful of pilgrims on the island who are boarded in separate accommodation and whose access to the monastic buildings is strictly controlled. The separation of pilgrims is a policy introduced by Wiglaf, for under his leadership, the community of Inisguin has become increasingly insular, as the abbot seeks to distance the monastery from its missionary roots. This has forced the monks to become largely self-sufficient, with all who reside on Inisguin being expected to contribute to sustaining their communal existence. However, not all members of the order are happy about the direction that Wiglaf has taken the community, and in the cloisters, whispers of dissent are on the rise, threatening to shatter the harmony which has bounded the community for centuries. Chapter 23, Part 2, Day 31, Afternoon, Party Status. The party status is unchanged. The sight of a Skarne dragon ship approaching would normally be enough to cause panic among any coastal community from Godsport to Alakazar. But Canute had ordered the dragon's head to be covered with a sackcloth and the Colwyn banner to be hung from the ship's yard so that onlookers would know that the vessel came in peace and on behalf of a local lord. A half a mile from the island, the sail had been reefed, and now the crew pulled rhythmically on the oars to propel the Uverdracher forward. Ahead, the detail of the island was clearly visible, and a score of roped monks could be seen working with hoe and shovel, whilst elsewhere sheep grazed in the pastures. Canute navigated the vessel to the island's southern shore, where a small jetty provided a place to moor, though the waves of the high tide hid all sides of the causeway that connected Inisguin to the mainland. The oarsmen worked in unison, 
skillfully bringing the Uberdacher to a gentle halt against the jetty's barnacle-covered piles. Make fast! Knut commanded, and two crewmen jumped on the boardwalk and began securing the ship to the cleats. Look there, Beric said, nodding in the direction of the monastery, where two roped men could be seen walking briskly towards the moored vessel. The first had a small build, which was accentuated by his companion, who was tall and broad. They looked almost comical as they strode forward, the smaller man taking twice as many paces as the larger. By the time the pair of monks had reached the jetty, Knut, Talion and the companions had alighted from the Uverdracher and had been standing awaiting the two men. It was immediately clear that the smaller man was in charge, for despite his diminutive stature, he possessed a commanding presence, despite being faced with a ship full of armed men. He was perhaps forty years old, with close-cropped red hair and pale blue eyes. His nose was short and his mouth wide, and his face wore an expression of confidence. His companion was a giant of a man, standing taller than Canute and just as broad. He too had blue eyes and a mop of shaggy blonde hair, and like the other man he was clean-shaven. The man looked pointedly at Canute. His expression was one of suspicion. The Skarnay warrior on the other hand was grinning broadly, his arms open. Ranulf, he cried with mock warmth. The big monk's brow nodded further. Father Wiglaf, the monk Ranulf, said solemnly, addressing the smaller man. This is my brother, Canute Haraldson. He did not seem pleased to be reunited with his kin. The companions looked on with surprise. I might have known, Father Wiglaf said sourly. Well, perhaps your brother, his tone was sarcastic, can explain why Lord Conwyn sends a ship full of Skarne warriors to the Blessed Isle. Wiglaf's whole manner was curt and not at all pleasant. Knut was about to open his mouth, but Lena stepped forward and placed her hand on the warrior's arm. Perhaps it would be better if I explain. Whilst the monks of Innis Gwyn are used to hosting pilgrims, they do not take kindly to a ship full of heavily armoured warriors appearing on their shores. So to find out how this will go, I am going to make a charisma check for Lena. I would ordinarily award Lena a plus one bonus when interacting with fellow members of the clergy, but given the circumstances, I'm not going to do so. This means that Lena will need to roll a 13 or less to win the monk over. Here is the roll. An 18! Oh dear. The monk observed Elena with narrow, suspicious eyes. And who are you? he demanded of the cleric. You wear the Nine's blessed symbol, yet you travel in the company of heathens bearing the flag of a lord who tolerates heretics. The man's prejudice was plain, and Lena had not yet opened her mouth. Forgive us, father. My name is Lena of Godsport, a humble servant of the Nine. These are my good friends, Beric, Kier, and Valen. She replied, indicating each of the others in turn. 
Your companion appears to know Kunut already, but this is Talion, the Bard, whom we ourselves have only met these past five days in the company of Lord Conwyn. The small monk snorted in derision, looking from Valen to Talion, and looking back to Lena. As I said, you come in the company of heathens, but you have not yet explained your intrusion on the tranquility of the Blessed Isle. Lena did not react. Rather, her demeanour was one of humility and respect. We come seeking Mithra's wisdom, and humbly ask your permission to access the great library of Idis Gwyn. Father Wiglaf's eyes narrowed, and he sneered. I cannot agree to your request. I will not allow the heathen, nor those that consort with them, to defile our holy sanctum. Please, Father. Lena begged. Our need is great, and our task is in the service of the Nine. She added earnestly. I doubt that, Wiglaf mocked. But if you are so determined, then you must prove yourselves worthy. And how might we do that? Lena asked. A cruel smile played upon Wiglaf's lips. West, across the Bay of Sorrows, is the ruin called Kerodu. Knut spat at the cursed name. It is believed that the ruin was once the fortress of a heathen warlord. Wiglaf paused to allow his words to sink in before continuing. From what I have managed to piece together, I believe there may be a treasure located there. A disc of pure gold fashioned in the image of the sun. A worthy tribute for our Lord Solan. Bring me the disc to prove your devotion and then you may access the great library. Ranulf shifted uncomfortably next to his superior. Father, with respect, that place is death. No one has ever returned from it. Wiglaf shot a venomous glance at the big monk. Not for those who walk in service of the Nine, the monk said sharply, before turning back to the companions. Well, what say you? So, Lena failing that charisma check led me to go back narratively and make Father Wiglaf somewhat more unpleasant than I had originally planned, and indeed his influence described in the Gazetteer segment earlier in this episode. I know that's a little retcon, but I felt it was the right thing to do. At any rate, if the party want access to the library at Innis Gwyn, they have little choice but to accept Wiglaf's mission. Now Canute was only commanded by Lord Conwyn to take the companions to Innis Gwyn, and then on to the mainland so ferrying them to Kerodurum back is stretching that. So on that basis I need to make some rolls. One of the core aspects of old school Dungeons and Dragons is the hiring of retainers. The maximum number of retainers and their loyalty is determined by the character's charisma score. Because the Skarne are a warrior culture, I'm going to base these rolls on Beric's charisma. The fighter has a charisma of 11 meaning that he can recruit a maximum of 4 retainers, with a morale of 7. Next, the referee must determine a reasonable level of remuneration for the retainers. I think Canute would judge that Lord Conwyn would expect him to help the companions, but also that his men could not be reasonably expected to walk into danger for nothing. So I am going to set the price as 10 gold per person, which equates to around 2 weeks salary for an average soldier, 
In addition, the retainers will receive a collective 10% of any treasure found. So now I need to roll on the retainer reaction table to see whether the offer is accepted. Just like reaction rolls, higher is better. Here is the roll on 2d6. An 11! Well, it doesn't get much better than that. Finally, I need to decide what to do about Talion. I originally put him on the ship because it felt narratively interesting, and because it was a logical way for the bar to move safely on to the next town by hitching a ride so to speak. The question is, would he tag along with the companions in the hope of finding creative inspiration? I don't think the party would naturally hire Talion for this kind of mission, and I have not yet fully determined his personality. Okay, I think the logical answer is to make a charisma check for Valen, given his shared heritage with the Bard. Valen's charisma is 10. Here is the roll. A 7. It would seem that Talion finds the companion's tale compelling enough for the Bard to risk his life. Now it's time to establish if anything happens on the journey to Kerudu. Firstly, I want to know if the monks will provide any provisions for the journey. I'll make another charisma check to establish this. Rolling against Lena's score of 13. A 5. I doubt that Father Wiglaf would approve, but I think Ranulf, despite his estrangement with Canute, would want to help his brother. I'm going to say that Ranulf provides enough provisions to sustain the party for 1d4 days. Okay, it'll be three days before the party will need to use their iron rations. The journey to Caradu will involve a three-hour voyage across the Bay of Sorrows, followed by a ten-mile hike across an area known as the Felmoors. On that basis, given that it is late afternoon, the party will stay moored at Inisgwyn and set off at dawn the next day. Before the end of day 31, Lena will pray to be healed. She will need to roll a 17 or more for her prayers to be answered. An 18! Well, that's not happened before. But Lena can pray for two first level miracles each day, so let's try again. A 19! What are the chances of that? Whilst never complacent, Lena cannot help but be affected by the nine refusing to answer her call. Day 32. Lena recovers one hit point through natural healing, and decides not to pray to be healed further. Now I'm going to make two sets of rolls, one for the sea voyage and one for the trek across the moor. Sea voyage first. Weather? A 12. Warm and fine. Stumble upon. 15. Nothing. Wandering encounter. A 3. Nothing. Now for the companions travel across the moor. Weather? A 2. Temperate and wet. Stumble upon. A 1. Oh, that's not good. Whereas a roll of 20 for stumble upon is something especially good, a roll of 1 is something especially bad. This is going to need some thought. Before I work out what that is, I need to finally check for wandering encounters. A 3. Okay then, let's find out what all that means. Chapter 23 Part 3 Day 32 Early Morning Party Status Beric 23 out of 23 hit points 
Lena, 12 out of 16 hit points. Kier, 10 out of 10 hit points. Valen, 11 out of 11 hit points. Spells available. Valen has memorized Push, Shield, and Soothe. Lena can pray for two first level miracles. The golden light of dawn glistened and sparkled on the water and caused the Uvadraka to cast a long shadow ahead as she sailed west from Inisgwyn. The Blessed Isle was silhouetted against the orange-yellow horizon as the monastery slowly receded into the distance. The sea was calm and tranquil, and only the slightest breeze hampered the crew's work as they pulled on the ship's great oars. Before they departed, Brother Ranulf had come to the ship with another monk, an older man named Cadfael, bearing sacks of bread, cheese and salted mutton, as well as skins of weak ale. Cadfael apologised for the cold welcome offered by Wiglaf, and he warned the companions that a great evil was reputed to live among the ruins of Kerudu. He could not say the nature of this evil, though he recited a verse found in an ancient text which may aid them in their burden. Like the river she did learn, to twist and coil and ever turn. And like the rapids she doth speak, cursed, for never was she meek. Through her gaze she doth behold immortal men that grow not old. And neither she with husbands be, lest in her eyes she doth see. Valen stood gazing out upon the water, his hands resting on the port side of the hull, as Cadfael's words resonated in his mind. A crooning sound above broke his reverie, and looking up, he saw a lone gull following the ship as it glided across the water. At that moment, Lena came to stand next to him. The morning air was fresh, and the cleric had her woolen cloak drawn about her. She said nothing at first instead staring out as he did. Eventually, she turned to him. Valen, I... She hesitated, as if trying to find the right words. That night, introverted. They had not spoken of it since. Something stirred within the mage. I never thanked you for saving my life. I... No. Lena was startled by Valen's interruption though he continued to look out upon the sea. It's my fault. What? No. Valen turned to face her, though his eyes were downcast. It is my fault, Lena, he repeated. I... I wanted to come to you. Earlier, he admitted. His heart was thumping in his chest. If I had, then you would not have been attacked. But I was afraid, afraid of what might or might not be. Valen's words hung between them. Moments passed. Then he felt her fingers gently upon his hand. He looked up and met her green eyes. She smiled. Perhaps we might face the fear together. By noon, the Uvadrache had passed a settlement to the south, which Canute told them was the village of Porthiane. And shortly after, 
they spotted an old lighthouse which stood upon an exposed headland at the entrance to a small bay. Here the water became shallow enough that the keel occasionally scraped upon the sandy seabed, and slowly the ship approached a cove where a small river ran into the sea. The oarsmen drove the Ubertucker onto the beach, and after gathering their belongings, the companions climbed down onto the sand, while Canute addressed the crew. I accompany our new friends, for it would be Lord Conwyn's will. I ask for three volunteers to go also, and as reward you will each receive enough silver to forge an arm ring to mark your valor. The crew looked around at each other for a moment. Then a woman and two men stood up from their benches. Yora, Bjorn, Arn, well met. The three warriors grabbed packs, shields and spears before climbing down to join the companions. Knut donned his hauberk and then pulled a fine helmet onto his head before addressing the crew one final time. Robin, you are in command. If we do not return three days hence, go back to Lord Conwyn and tell him we are dead. And if that is our fate, we shall meet again in the Great Meat Hall, where we shall drink and fight until the world's end. Knut turned and climbed down from the Uverdacher, as the crew began stamping their feet rhythmically on the deck. Beric stepped forward, extending his arm to the Scarlet Warrior. You have our thanks. Knut clasped the big man's arm and smiled grimly. Together we will spill the blood of our enemies, and then we shall be brothers. Thank you for listening to Legend of the Bones. As this was a slightly longer show, I'll keep things brief. Once again, where would I be without my amazing cast of voice actors? Returning to the show, this time in the role of Father Wiglaf, is Robin Sampson. Robin has recently started his own podcast, which is a hybrid of solo actual play and audio drama, called Stories from the First Watch. He's made a fantastic start, and I'm already hooked. If you like what I do here, then it's definitely worth checking out Robin's show. Hang on for his trailer after these credits. A newcomer to the show, playing Brother Ranulf, is Kevin Conyers. Kevin has a blog with all kinds of OSR goodness at floodedrealms.com. Fellow newcomer, voicing Brother Cadfowl, is Dave Patterson, aka Bagpuss Grognard, on Twitter. Dave hosts the wonderful Chimera that is Frankenstein RPG podcast. And finally, returning to the role of Canute, is John Cohen from Tale of the Manticore, an absolute essential listen. I'll drop links to these good folks' stuff in the show notes. My sincere thanks to all of you. The show is so much richer for your contributions. You could also help by liking or retweeting new episode announcements or recommending the show online or to a friend. Alternatively, if you'd like to show your appreciation by buying me a metaphorical cup of tea, then I now have a Kofi page at ko-fi.com forward slash legend of the bones. Any donations will go towards the show's running costs. I'd also love to know what you think of the show and I do respond to every message I receive. So with that in mind, you can contact me on Twitter at LegendBones, Mastodon at LegendOfTheBones at ttrpg-hangout.social, Instagram at LegendOfTheBones, email at LegendOfTheBones at gmail.com, 
or go to legendofthebones.blogspot.com for show notes, house rules, character profiles, art, maps and more. Join me next time to find out what awaits our adventurers as the bones decide their fate. None shall escape the destiny of bone. Now this is a matter of supreme importance. Welcome to Stories from the First Watch. This is both a solo game and an experiment in storytelling. The story and the character's actions will unfold upon the roll of the dice. They are in control. Be careful what you say, or you have no time at all. Follow the exploits of a party of adventurers, forced to take on a dangerous mission on behalf of a shadowy organisation. Just be careful when insulting minor lordlings. Their egos can be dangerous things. Available on Podbean, Spotify and Podchaser. And come and listen to more stories from the first watch.